Is the Lord's power limited? In the verse just preceding the passage read from the book of Numbers, this is the question that God raises. God raises this question because God knows that though Moses doesn't say it, he is thinking it. Moses is suffering burnout, and he is at his wit's end. Having led the Israelites out of Egypt and having freed them from enslavement to Pharaoh, Moses probably thought that his labors were nearly over. He wasn't prepared for all the grumbling and discontent that would follow. He wasn't prepared for the Israelites to wail, why did we ever leave Egypt? If you recall, Moses didn't want the job back then, and he didn't want it now. Moses, Moses complains to God, why have you treated your servant so badly? Why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all these people on me? Taking pity on him, God addresses the situation by empowering more people to help Moses. God instructs Moses to gather 70 of the elders of Israel so that they can share some of the burden of leadership with him. Of all the magnificent things that the Bible tells us God does to solve untenable, intractable situations, this is one that sounds doable. For any lifelong Presbyterian, this organizational plan resonates of course, we would be missing the true magnificence of God's plan if we weren't to grasp what Moses grasps, that the reason this plan works is God's gift of the Spirit. Of all people, Moses knows the power of the Spirit. After all, it was God's Spirit that inspired in him compassion for the enslaved Israelites a vision for their liberation, the courage to stand up against Pharaoh and to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. And through it all, a tenacious faithfulness to God and God's people. For God to pour out his spirit upon all these people would be tremendous. Imagine what it would be like for all the people of God to be so inspired by the Spirit, to feel deep within them a call to serve others and to share in the responsibility of caring for all God's people. Moses has no trouble imagining and wishing for this, while those around him, even the narrator, feel a little queasy about it and are concerned to contain and manage the Spirit Moses alone says, would that all the Lord's people, not just the 70, were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit on all of them. What would it be like for the spirit to be poured upon all people? What was in Moses' imagination similarly took hold of the early church and remains with us still? On Pentecost, God poured out his Holy Spirit upon the apostles 
who in the absence of Jesus were without inspiration. If at the time of his ascension into heaven, Jesus hadn't commissioned them to be witnesses to the ends of the earth and hadn't instructed them to stay together in the upper room and wait for the Holy Spirit to come to them, they would have likely gone back to their hometowns and previous occupations. We know that after Jesus' death, some were about to head back to their fishing villages. While waiting in Jerusalem for the coming of the Spirit, the disciples, too, reorganized themselves. Having lost one disciple, Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus, the disciples added another to make their original number of 11 complete. How little they knew. How small were their plans. As Luke tells us, when the day of Pentecost came, the disciples were all in one place, waiting just as Jesus had instructed them. And suddenly the Spirit blew through them, filled them, and gave them the ability to speak so fluently in foreign languages that Jews from all over the world who had been living in Jerusalem could actually understand them in their native languages. In all these different languages... The apostles spoke about God's deeds of power and what God had accomplished in Jesus Christ. And then Peter spoke to all of them, reminding them of the magnificent vision of the prophet Joel, a vision in which God would pour out God's spirit upon all flesh, sons and daughters, young and old, enslaved and free. In this vision, anyone who called upon the name of the Lord would find salvation. Being so inspired by what they heard, about 3,000 persons were added to their number on that day. Luke goes on to tell us that all who believed spent much time together in the temple, broke bread together in their homes, shared food with generosity, and had the goodwill of all in their hearts. And the Lord continued day by day to add to their number. From that first Pentecost on, the early church got a taste of what it would be like for the Spirit to be poured out on all people. There is no way that the apostles, who earlier had just reorganized themselves to add an 11th disciple, could have anticipated such an oversupply of the Spirit. They could not have anticipated how the Spirit would enable the good news to be spread to the ends of the earth, person by person, conversion by conversion. A single conversion is a remarkable event that anyone's heart and mind, orientation to life and the world could be so thoroughly changed is remarkable. In your lifetime, how many times have you undergone such thorough conversion? A few of you have shared your conversion stories with me. Born and raised in the church, I cannot say that I know what it is like. I often wonder, though, 
what it was like for my ancestors, my father's aunt, the lone adult in my father's family who went to church and whom my father followed to church when he was a young boy, and my mother's grandfather who was the first convert in his family and who then became one of the earliest Korean Presbyterian pastors. What were their conversions like? Who was it that they encountered, heard, or observed? What was it that they felt? Did they have guides, teachers, or mentors who actively taught them Christ's teachings? What was it that cracked open their hearts and minds to let in these new teachings? I imagine that the experience of conversion is different for everyone, that there is no standard technique or timeline by which the good news of what God accomplished in Jesus Christ becomes thoroughly impressed on our hearts and minds. This is spiritual work. And just like the spirit, it cannot be choreographed and controlled. It is spiritual work that each person has to undergo uniquely, just as each person is unique. Some of you may be familiar with the spiritual writings of Howard Thurman. If you are not, I recommend his writings to you. Howard Thurman was an American theologian, a mystic, an educator, pastor, and civil rights leader. In 1980, one year before he died, Howard Thurman gave a commencement address at Spelman College. In this address, entitled, The Sound of the Genuine, Thurman spoke to the graduates of things that can help us, I think, to understand the unique quality of what happens when the spirit is at work within each person. Let me read for you parts of his address. You are the only you that has ever lived. Your idiom is the only idiom of its kind in all of existence. And if you cannot hear the sound of the genuine in you, you will all of your life spend your days on the ends of strings that somebody else pulls. There is in you something that waits and listens for the sound of the genuine in yourself. And sometimes there is so much traffic going on in your minds, so many different kinds of signals, and you are buffeted by these. And in the midst of all of this, you have got to find out what your name is. What is your name? Who are you? How does the sound of the genuine come through to you? Now, if I hear the sound of the genuine in me, and if you hear the sound of the genuine in you, it is possible for me to go down in me and come up in you, so that when I look at myself through your eyes, having made that pilgrimage, I see in me what you see in me, and the wall that separates and divides will disappear, and we will become one, because the sound of the genuine makes the same music. 
I imagine conversion to be this kind of spiritual work, uniquely attuned to the sound of the genuine in each person. And while it, it seems like a solitary endeavor, I don't believe that it is, because the spirit is at work not only within us, but also between us, relating one person to another, the sound of the genuine in one person to the sound of the genuine in another. That Thurman likens this to the way music is created reminds me of a poem written by the medieval mystic and poet Rumi. I'd like to read it to you now. I like when the music happens like this. Something in his eye grabs hold of a tambourine in me. Then I turn and lift a violin in someone else. And they turn, and this turning continues. It has reached you now, hasn't it? Isn't that something? Could it be that conversion, person by person, feels something like that? What began on Pentecost, of course, is not over yet. People all over the earth are still seeking to hear words that are trustworthy and true, words so genuine and good that when they hear them, they long to make them their own. Just as a spirit cannot be contained, the sound of the genuine in you strikes a chord in another. And like this, the spirit moves among all God's people, convicting them somewhere deep down and sending them out to inspire others. From that very first Pentecost in Jerusalem, the spirit has reached you, and it has reached me now. Isn't that something? Amen. <laughs>